themselves and 360 the world. Jamie Neal, the host, asks many questions about their mindset and how they fundamentally operate their world and the world around them. We're supported by General Assembly and that's right, you can get a 25% discount for their services. Promo code is 360yourself25. The code will be valid up to £75 off any one of their classes, workshops and boot camps and is valid until the 31st 08 2021 and is not applicable to GA's full-time, part-time or online circuit courses. Full T's and C's apply. Here at 360 Yourself, we are very proud and honoured to be partnered with General Assembly. We embrace this with open arms to a new adventure. General Assembly is a global tech education company focused on the most in-demand areas today. So that's anything from UX, digital marketing, coding, data science, data analytics, to travel writing and ethics. Our slash their main goal is to get you where you want to be. You can find out more about them at ga.co online or across all socials at ga underscore London. We also encourage you to please rate and comment about us on Apple Podcasts. If you do enjoy what we bring to your ears, we'd love to hear about it. Hello and welcome back to 360 Yourself. I hope you're having a good morning, good afternoon or good evening, wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening in. Hopefully you're in a comfortable position or maybe you're on your way to work or whatever it is. I've got an amazing guest for you today. So we're talking about pivotal moments. We all know what these are, pivotal moments, the moments in life where you realize a new beginning, a pivotal moment where your surrounding, your situation is changed and you must change. Change is good. Ladies and gentlemen, change is good. It is good to change. We can't be stale. We can't stay in the same place. I think I talk talk about this so much in our podcast. Change is good. Pivotal moments like recently with COVID, we had to pivot that. It could be even friendships like your friendship is becoming a bit toxic with someone. That's a pivot. You might have a toxic uh, relationship with your partner. That's a pivot as well family, friends, career, we all have to pivot at some point in our life and it's good. Accept it, embrace it and let's do it. So I have an amazing guest for you to discuss Pivotal Moments. I have Deborah, who is the TV writer for Emily in Paris and also the author of Lady Parts, which is, which is her seventh book, seven books. Um, it is an amazing book. It's coming out August 3rd. 2021, um, we talk about everything about the book, how it all happened with Emily in Paris, pivotal moments in her career, and just in general, pivotal moments in anyone's life is important to talk about. So please give a hands up, hands clap, stomp your feet for Deborah. Are you ready to be 360'd? Hey, Deborah, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you doing this morning? Very, very well. Um, it is a Monday, it's sunny. So I always believe that if my Mondays are really sunny and it's bright, I'm generally going to have a really good week. I find it really weird when the, the weather is like raining at the start of the week because then it puts me in like a weird headspace. But today it's really sunny. I'm in the UK, so I'm in Devon if you know where Devon is in the UK. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, good, it's a good time. So 
how are you? Where, so my first question is, I always ask my guests, is where are you in this world at the moment? Because everyone is everywhere. So, right. <laughs> it's, 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 so I always go like, oh, you're in LA or you're usually in London. And they're like, no, no, I've gone to like Middlesbrough now or no, I'm in like Kansas. I'm like, okay, cool. So where are you at the moment in time? So I am in Red Hook, Brooklyn, which is really like this kind of small, almost fishing village on the edge of a giant metropolis. And I just moved here in March, forced oh. move, um, because I was living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn for two I, years. I know Williamsburg very, very well, yes. So yeah, we moved to Williamsburg um, in 2018. And suddenly in the middle of the pandemic, my um, landlord wanted his apartment back. Um, yeah, whatever. Um, I, 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 even one better, my friend had a place and because he was from London, he had to vacate his property and then move back to London. But then his landlord was like, what about rent? He was like, well, I can't pay it. I've got, I've been shipped back to London. I think a lot of people have had that in America, but you, but you can't, I read that you can't, um, evict anyone like, cause there's a rule or whatever or something. Right. Okay. So the, the laws do not really favor the renters in America, but during pandemic, they did make a rule that you could not um, kick people out of their apartments. Yeah. However, however, we were at the end of our two-year lease. And so I, um, I, was, I was made to understand that I could be kicked out of our apartment because our lease was over. And so legally the landlord could kick us out. Now, America has the worst rental laws of basically any country. I actually looked into this. Like in London, you can't just kick somebody out at the end of the lease. I mean, and, and in Sweden and in Denmark and in France, I mean, there, there are laws to protect people's homes. Um, but here, no, the law protects the landlord. So we were kicked out of our home during the pandemic and had to suddenly find a new apartment which was not easy because people weren't letting you into their home to visit the new apartment. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. It was, I have to say, it was the most stressful move I have ever made. And I've made a lot of moves. Do they, do they uh, give you like a couple of weeks? How does it work? Because obviously like, I think in the UK, it's like four weeks or six weeks or whatever to find a new place. How does it work? They gave us three months and we couldn't find anything in three months. So we just said, look, I, we don't have a place to move. So you're going to have to hold tight. Um, and we finally found a place in six months. And that's why I'm in a, uh, you know, this um, part of Brooklyn called Red Hook, which I'd actually never really explored before. And here's the crazy thing. A move of desperation has become my favorite home I've ever lived in. No I way. love this. I love this neighborhood. I'm surrounded on all four, on all three sides by water. So for example, when I took my little walk this morning and I listened to your podcast so I could hear what I was about to get myself into, um, yeah. I, I could walk along the perimeter of New York Harbor where my relatives, my grandparents all came into this Harbor and there's the Statue of Liberty right there. And it's actually kind of a moving place to live, to see the Statue of Liberty when you drive out of the uh, grocery store, for example, or when you go on your walk every day and to know that, you know, I'm a third generation immigrant to this country and my, all of my grandparents came by boat through this Harbor. I know that sounds cheesy, but there's something moving about that. No, I've, I've never thought about, because I, when you obviously associate New York, you never think about the outside of, of New York. So I always think like big buildings. I mean, I've been yeah. to New York many, many times, but I always forget like in Brooklyn, there are rivers and stuff. And because I'm from a countryside, I have to be by rivers and sea and greenery. And it's just, it's, it's weird to think that actually outside New York, there is stuff like that. Right. So New York, the New York that everybody knows is pretty much, you know, Times Square and downtown and the village. But this part of New York, which I live in, which is part of the city of New York, is all water. And there are people fishing off the pier. It's the, it is like, what's so lovely is I'm, you know, I am 20 minutes by bike from downtown. I can just bike over the Brooklyn Bridge and be downtown. And yet I do feel like I live in a tiny little village with one main street called Van Brunt Street, which I live on. And then, 
you have just kind of beautiful waterfront, a place to watch the sunset every night, a mm -hmm. place to watch the sunrise every morning if you wanted to on the other side. And it's all a tiny peninsula. So it's beautiful. I mean, it sounds, sounds wonderful. So it's, it's sometimes uh, you talk, think about the universe and like the law of attraction. Sometimes like these paths of like, you have to move out quick and find somewhere are all in this sort of like weird universal reason why we do things and stuff. And so sometimes like it was a bit of a stress, but actually you moved into the, the perfect place that you wanted to. Right. And I think actually when you deal with all stressors that way, and you know, that's a lot of what my book is about. Like these, these stressors came on one after the other, an illness or job loss or a divorce or, and, and if you, if you get buried by them, you get buried by them, right? Your mm -hmm. life stalls. But if you use each annoyance and each illness and each stressor as a moment of awakening, okay, what is this asking me to awaken to? Then each of these sometimes horrific things can become um, a moment of moving forward, a moment of change and a moment of growth. Mm -mm -mm. So let's, before we go on, go on to your book, which obviously I'm really sure. excited to talk about, let's go back. Back, back, back. Sure. How did it all start with writing? Like, where did it all start? I mean, if we're going to go all the way back to childhood, I was, a, I was an avid reader as a child, right? Mm -hmm. And I loved the private conversation that you had with an author. It, it felt as if, you know, reading, I used to read Nancy Drew mysteries um, or reading Catcher in the Rye for the first time or reading anything where you kind of got a glimpse into adult life or teenage life or life beyond your childhood that the author was letting that you into their special world and and they were telling you secrets about the universe that you needed to know and it was this private conversation and I really really love that private conversation this kind of two-way street right you're not watching a TV show with your family that everybody else is watching. You're not watching a movie in a big movie theater where there's, you know, hundreds of other people. It's just you and the author. And so I did think at an early age that I wanted to be a writer, but um, there were not many opportunities in my junior high school or high school to do creative writing. We just didn't have any courses in it. It was a lot more sort of traditional learning and, you know, rote learning. And then when I got to college, you know, my college didn't have a, um, a creative writing department either. There was an English department, but that was from 1984 to 88 was when I was in college. And that was really the era of Derrida and deconstructionism. And so everybody was into like subtext and reading subtext, but not into creating text. And so there was one, one creative writing course in the entire Harvard course catalog. And I got rejected three times. So I just thought, oh, I guess, I guess I'm not a writer. I guess I can't write. I'm not a writer. Um, let me find something else that I can do. So I ended up in the VES department, which is called Visual and Environmental Studies, which was filmmaking, photography, painting. Um, and I started off with filmmaking because I, you know, it's another storytelling device, right? And because I wanted to get a degree in filmmaking, I also had to take another studio. So I ended up taking photography and then photography just grabbed my imagination immediately. And it, it was filmmaking again is not a private act. It's you need a gaffer, you need a DP, you need so many people around you to make a film. Whereas photography, you have a camera and yourself and the world and you can do it privately. And I guess I love, private work, meaning work that I don't have to rely on anyone else to do. I just go out there and do it. So I became a war photographer for four years and I ran off to Paris. I lived in Paris for four years. Um, and I immediately started working for Sigma and then for Gamma and then for Contact and for all these French magazines and newspapers plus Americans. So like L'Express, Libération, um, Le Monde, and then, you know, Time, Newsweek. And I covered Afghanistan during the Soviet pullout. And I covered um, Romania during the coup. And I covered the Soviet Union during the coup. So sort of everything that happened between 1988 and 92, except for the Berlin Wall, which I missed. I missed the Berlin Wall because I was off doing another assignment in China. Um, anyway, all that stuff uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, I covered as a war photographer. But 
the impulse to write was never squelched. So every time I did a photo story, I would also send off, you know, three pages of the story that I shot itself, which my agency thought like, oh, well, we have somebody to write that in house. I'm like, but the person in house is not here on the ground. So let me just write the story and I'll send it off to you. You don't have to pay me for the story, but like, it's helpful for you to know that these are the events, these are the people, these, this is what I saw. And it really got me in the practice of writing because I was shooting these photos, but I was also writing the text every time. And sometimes my texts would actually get published along with the photographs. Mm -hmm. Came back to the States, um, was going to continue with photojournalism, but um, you know, you're lucky in the UK to have the um, NHS, right? The National Health Service. Of course, which is obviously amazing. I, it's been amazing for us over COVID. Oh, amazing. And so I got back to the States to continue doing photojournalism and realized, oh God, well, I won't have health insurance. And, you know, if you're a woman and on the pill and, you know, need to go to a gynecologist every year, like you can't not have health insurance. So I ended up getting a job as a TV producer at ABC News and then um, NBC News. So for six years, I did TV news in a very corporate job, corporate setting. Mm -hmm. And I had two babies in the middle of that. So I had my son in 1995 and then my daughter in 1997 and they were 21 months apart. And so, oh, there's a bug here, hold on. Um, I said to the NBC brass, I said to my boss at NBC, Neil Shapiro, who's this lovely man who now runs channel 13 here. I said, you know, I've got these two babies. I, can I, I can't find any balance in life. Like, if I have to do the grocery shopping on Saturdays, like I just don't get to see my babies at all. Like I would like to work four days a week and, and have Friday off so that I can at least like get all my errands done and then really have time with my children on the weekends. Cause I just felt like I was not giving them the time that they needed with their parent. And I said, you know, they'll grow up, they'll go to school soon, but right now they're babies and I'm not seeing them. I'm literally not spending any time with them because when you work in TV news, you're often working on the weekends as well, right? Mm -hmm. So he approved of my four day week schedule. And then a woman who was above him, the vice president at NBC turned it down. And she said, I had to have my children um, five days a week. You can too. It was kind of this like, well, I survived this, so should you. Everyone, Which, everyone, everyone's situation is always different though. So it's like saying mm -hmm. I can do it. So, 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 should, so should you as well. Yeah. I mean, the crazy part is I was going to get paid four fifths of my salary and produce the exact same amount of work because, you know, I can do my job in four days a week. Everybody can do their job in four days a week. We've learned that during COVID. And, and also, I, I literally was talking to someone about this re uh, recently who, do, who are doing uh, technology pro uh, products and she's helping another company do this sort of thing about how to make people more productive in the future. But I was saying like four day weeks are going to be so normal in the future. I don't think people like working from home is one. So yeah. places like Soho Works and stuff, I think is going to be um, a difficult business model. But I also think that four day work weeks are going to be a bit more normal because I think we don't need five days to do your work. No. You can do it in four. Yeah, you absolutely can do it in four. And sometimes you can wake up early on the fifth day and get something done that you need to get done. Yeah. But, but this idea that we must be chained to a desk in an office five days a week. I mean, thank God, that's the one wonderful thing to come out of COVID is like, this is a crazy way to live one's life. It is a crazy way to live one's life. So what happened once I was denied this four day a week work week, I, I thought to myself, well, what can I do to make money and see my kids and, and have a different career? I mean, it's it was time to pivot, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, this nagging how, how, desire. First, first of all, how, how old was you when you were doing this pivot? I'd love to know. Oh. Okay, it was it was 1998, and I was born in '66, so I was 32. 32. Okay, brilliant. Carry on. I was 30, 32 years old, uh, and I had two babies, right? You know, mm -hmm. two little babies, 21 months apart. You know, toddler, baby, whatever. So I decided to work three days a week. You know, now that I could run my own schedule, I decided to work three days a week and take off four days a week to be with my kids. So what was I gonna do during those three days a week? I went back to my first love writing. You know, I didn't get into the course at, at college. Um, I didn't go into it as a career, but 
I knew I loved to write and I knew, not that I knew that I was good at it, but I knew I had something to say. I had a lot to say. And the, the way I wanted to say it, you know, I'd been saying it through photography and a picture is worth a thousand words, but sometimes you need the words, right? Sometimes you actually want to say those words. And in fact, I had PTSD from covering wars, you know, and sort of intense PTSD from lots of near misses. And I thought, you know, maybe the way to deal with that PTSD and to wrangle it is to write a book about those years as a war photographer. You know, I went off covering wars at age 22, right? That's, that's young. And I was sort of living through my early twenties in a war zone, war zone after war zone after war zone. So I decided for my three day a week schedule to write Shutter Babe, um, which was not called Shutter Babe at the time. It was turned in under the title Shutter Girl, mm -hmm. um, but, NBC, uh, but uh, Random House maybe changed it to Shutter Babe, which is something we can get into later. Um, and I wrote the first chapter of this book and a, um, and an outline for the rest of it. And I sold it for twice my NBC salary. So I thought, okay, I've bought myself two years to work three days a week, see if this works out, take care of my kids, you know, just get through these two years until I at least send the first one off to kindergarten, right? Um, because in America, we don't have cash or these like anything yeah. like you guys have. It, it, school starts at age five, it doesn't start before then. If you want to send your kids to school before then you pay outrageous sums of money for this you know back then it was like twenty five thirty thousand dollars a year for Ooh. a preschool wow, yeah that's a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah a lot america is, is so Amer messed up right now america's, i mean it's so america's messed up so expensive anyway it's just, i'm just it's it's not that it's just expensive it's just like we don't honor the idea of working women and families you know there was a <laughs> There was a headline in, in January of 2021 saying 140,000 jo American jobs were lost. All of them were women. There's, that's not a coincidence. That is, that is, that's the way the system is set up. Like we don't have a system set up for working families. Mm. And so the women end up not leaving because they want to take care of kids, but leaving because there's no choice. There's just, there's no way of actually paying outrageous sums for childcare or outrageous sums for the crash or, for, you know, it, it, we still have not figured out our system and healthcare is a big part of that. A oh, giant, sure. like this is giant what I'm saying, like, The NHS it. for us is like one of the best things about this country. Like we have the NHS. I don't know why, like it's so expensive, like just to have like insurance, like health insurance in, in the US compared to- My health insurance, my health insurance right now is $2,400 a month in Cobra because I'm no longer working. Like that's a, crazy. Twenty four hundred. That's like more than rent. I mean, it's it's insane. It is insane. We are broken. And actually, part of the you know the the underlying story of Lady Parts, my book, is being in debt from mm. from health insurance and from health costs because even if you do have health insurance. You're still getting charged $2,000 for that MRI. You're still getting charged $800 for that x-ray because there's co-pays. So like, yes, you're not paying $20,000, but you're still on the hook for quite a bit of money. Mm. And if, you know, if you're healthy in this country, fine. If you're sick in this country, you are, are we, am, I allowed to, am I allowed to curse on here? You can curse, yes. You are <laughs> fucked. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, there, there, there's so much wrong with, what's going on in America at this moment in time in terms of like the healthcare system, you got Black Lives Matter, you have like obviously like the award ceremony I was reading about the, there was not enough uh, people, uh, it was too many white people on the board and stuff. And there's, there's so much going on. And, and, and it also draws into kind of like the, the, the hoo-ha that went on around with Emily in Paris, which you were a TV writer on as well. And that, cause obviously it was the, what was that other TV show? I think it was that didn't get in or something. I can't remember what it was. And it, oh, it, I May Destroy You by Mikhail Cole. Who's yeah, and it, got, and, it, and it won what, all the BAFTAs and stuff over here. But obviously over there, it just didn't do very well. So there's so much going on in America, which is obviously, I don't know. I mean, obviously there's crazy things going on over here as well. We, we have Matt Hancock, who was our health secretary, has now been 
has uh, um, now left caught snogging with his yeah, assistant. As, I, uh, I, I, was try, I was trying to word it in the most uh, uh, graceful kind of ways. But yeah, he's now left. And so there's someone else coming in now. So it's, I think the whole thing, you know, the US and the UK, there's all so much going on. Um, right. But, but remember that our country was founded on slavery, right? Our yeah. country, the reason we are so, and I'm going to say the word again, fucked right now as a country, and the reason why we have racism and the reason why voting rights are, are, are <coughs> now in trouble is because we, we built our country off the back of slaves. And that is going to be the legacy of America until we pay reparations, until we actually understand this. You know, there's big arguments right now about critical race theory, right? Nobody wants to do critical race theory. Well, critical race theory is history in the United States. We have to face our legacy of slavery before we move on as a country. Everything that is wrong in this country, well, most of the things that are wrong in this country can be traced back to this original sin of slavery, I believe. Yeah, and, and we don't learn about it in culture in our education system. Like you don't you don't learn about black culture. It's all like kind of pushed aside. And so I find it very strange how we don't learn about everything of history rather than just like one bit which people say, oh, this is what we're gonna learn about, and that's what we're gonna brainwash you to learn, rather than let's learn everything. Why can't we learn everything? And then make our own minds up. Well, you know, we just um President Biden just made Juneteenth a holiday. And I am ashamed to say that I did was, not know what Juneteenth was until Black Lives Matter. It was I a holiday. did not know. Was it not a holiday? June, 9, June 19th became a holiday this year. Became oh, a national it, I thought, holiday. I thought, I, thought, I thought it was a I thought it would always been a holiday. Not only was it not always a holiday, this was the first year that it was a holiday. It, I mean, a national holiday. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Black people celebrated before, but we weren't taught it. It's not in our history books. I did not learn this. And I consider myself, you know, well-educated that I, 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 I absorb information. I try to learn as much as I can. And I was ignorant of this massive, horrific moment in our history where mm. literally an entire, you know, Tulsa was burned, burned to the ground. This was like the Black Wall Street. This is where Black people were able to have their own economy in a way and have business and have respect and have a place that they could be humans for the first time in a mm. long time. And the whites of Tulsa burned it down. You know, we have a legacy of horrors that we have to deal with in this country that it, we're just scratching the surface, just, yeah. just scratching the surface. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't want to get too deep into kind of the political sort of thing. Sure, I, sure. Because obviously I want to talk about your book. But first, first of all, before we go into the book, like what was your experience working on Emily in, Emily in Paris? Because we, we've just mentioned that. So what was that yeah. experience? And then the whole kind of hoo-ha with the M, like all that kind of awards thing. How was that experience? Okay, so I came to Emily in Paris. So Darren Starr, who is the creator of Emily in Paris. Yeah bought the rights to my book, Shutter Babe, um, in 2001. And Shutter Babe is the story of me moving to Paris and becoming a war photographer. Yeah. He bought the rights to that <coughs> in 2001 for DreamWorks. DreamWorks had a giant budget at the time and sent Darren and me to Paris on a like 10 day fact finding mission. So we went there and it was, you know, fact finding mission, it was a vacation. We had such a nice time. I did show him, you know, where I, where I lived as a, in Paris, who my friends were in Paris. I, I gave him a, a week-long glimpse into my life as an expat in Paris. Mm -hmm. And then he went back and wrote the script. And then the two people that had bought uh, Shutter Babe for DreamWorks were fired. And so then once your executives get fired, then the, the yeah, usually the whole whatever, thing goes up and then you the got whole a, thing dies. You got to pitch it to another exec and all that sort yeah. of yeah, 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 yeah. So then, um, Anthony Bregman bought the rights to it and uh, at Likely Story. And then it went on to Sundance and Participant. Anyway, it's gone through a million different iterations. Hopefully one day it'll get made, we'll see. Um, but in 2017, I was just getting out of the hospital after nearly dying from this thing called vaginal cuff dehiscence, um, which is a horrific thing after uh, cervix removal. Anyway, Darren came to me and he said, I've sold a, sto a show to Paramount about a young woman who moves to Paris. Um, 
but it's not it's not you, it's not back in the eighties and you know, she's not gonna be a photojournalist. She's gonna have a different job. Would you like to help me work on it? And I was like, sure. Um, yeah, okay, I'd like, sure, I'll help you work on it. And so, um, you know, we, we worked on the show together. We worked on the, the pilot together. He wrote the pilot, uh, sent it to me. I rewrote parts of it. Um, we came up with ideas for various characters and for um, various lines of dialogue and stuff like that. And then um, Paramount said yes to the show and I was hired as a staff writer on the show. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not working on the second season. It, it, We wrote a show that wasn't necessarily the show I would have written, but it was Darren's show and Darren stole it. And so um, we made Emily, for example, um, she was a, she had a, a history in pharmaceutical marketing. Cause at one point I had to work in pharmaceutical marketing to you know earn a living and get health insurance. Um, the, um, the brand manifesto that she writes for Vaja Jeune is literally a brand manifesto that I wrote for uh, a real product when I was working in pharmaceutical marketing. So, you know, we, we did the show about somebody who worked in marketing and um, I think uh, he did, Darren did a great job and it was a, an adorable show. And it obviously was very popular during COVID because there's, you know, literally nothing else new to watch. So. <laughs> Like it was, you know, it did really well, right? Yeah, it did yeah. well. It was the number one show on Netflix. Um, I think it might still be. I mean, it was doing extremely well for a long time, mm-hmm. but it was critically panned. You know, there were a lot of um, correct criticisms of it. You know, white girl selling white products. Um, you know, why is she wearing high heel? You know, there's just a lot of cliches cliches yeah and also cliches about living in Paris I mean one of the things that I argued about was that she should really be trying a lot harder to speak French I mean that's what you do as an expat you try you make an attempt you don't try to like you know do the automatic thing on your phone where the phone is talking for you um (laughs) and in fact it is that struggle to be understood that is at the heart of every expat experience. You know, I've lived in Moscow and I've lived in Paris and, you know, trying to speak Russian, trying to like, I just remember in Russian, like the, the word table, for example, is stole, right? Mm-hmm. So you, if you put something on the table, under the table, the word changes because there's equinization. So it's pod nastal, yeah. Like no matter what you do to the table, the word changes. And those struggles are really interesting. They are, they are what make an expat experience. So we, we left all that out. It was sort of like more like sex in the city in Paris, right? It was, yeah. it was, it was a Darren Star show. So when my mother called me the morning that the Golden Globes were announced and said, Deb, I just saw on the Today Show, your show got nominated for a Golden Globe. I was like, no mom, you can't be serious. <laughs> And she's like, no, no, you definitely got nominated. And I said, no, mom, it got panned. What are you talking about? And so then I sort of you know, went online really quickly and saw that indeed we had been nominated for a Golden Globe. And then I also saw that Mikhail Cole's show, I May Destroy You, had not been nominated for a Golden Globe. And that was my favorite show of 2020. I mean, it's, it's so well written. It's just everything it's about it. It's amazing. Perfect. It's, it's so perfect that as the writer and a creator of, 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 of story, I watched it twice just to see how she did it because she's so clever with her storytelling techniques. It goes forward and backwards and forward and backwards and sideways. And it's just like, it's a brilliant storytelling. Now we weren't up for the same category. Emily in Paris and Michaela Cole were not up for the same category, but the fact that her show did not get one Golden Globe nod I kind of like quickly, you know, I, I, I typed up a tweet like, you know, I'm gonna write on Emily in Paris and Michaela Cole should have, Michaela Cole should have gotten a, a, a nod. Like this yeah. is crazy. Um, 
not thinking anything about it. Just like toss it out there like you do for any tweet, like, you know, sort of yeah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Send out, yeah. And suddenly the tweet was like, you know, going viral and getting traction. And then the um, the Guardian called me. So an, uh, an editor from the Guardian op-ed page said, would you be willing to expound further on this tweet? And I said to him, no, I really, I feel like the tweet says everything I want to say. And um, I'm, I'm in the final throes of editing, you know, the final copy edit of my book uh, of Lady Parts. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, I just, I just don't have time. And then he wrote me back saying, well, it would be great if you could. And then I just thought to myself, be an ally, be an ally, be an ally. Like this is our job, right? As white creators, it is our job to be allies to black creators whenever we can to talk about works that are brilliant by black creators to tweet them out to post them on facebook to share, to, to, share, to yeah. share our love of an amazing show so i was mm. like all right you know what i i i will take an hour or two out of my day and and do this because the guardian's asking because it's important because i cannot believe the the hollywood foreign press association did not give this perfect show, a nod. Mm. So I wrote up the op-ed and again, put it out there. Again, it went viral. I had to sort of hide from social media for, for two days. Because <laughs> I don't like, like, you know, people, I would say it was like 90% positive, but then there's the 10% of like performative allyship, you know, people accusing me of performative allyship and, you know, you're, you're making always, it all about you. You're, yeah, but you're always going to like get really negative people though, even set, instead of seeing the, the good intention. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You're always gonna get that. So, so, you know, I just like, I am, I'm, you know, I should, my daughter said I should have never chosen the life of a writer because I'm terrible at criticism. I'm terrible at dealing with it. So I just turned <laughs> off my phone, turned off my computer, like just didn't look at it. But then I noticed that the the LA Times started looking into the the makeup of the HFPA, the Hollywood mm -hmm. Foreign Press Association, and they did a giant deep dive investigative report into the fact that there is not one black member of the Hollywood Foreign Press, not one black member. Moreover, apparently my show Emily in Paris had flown over. 30 members or so of the Hollywood Foreign Press and put them up in $1,400 a night hotel rooms, blah, 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 like wine and dine them. And I guess that's all part of what people have done in the past. It's not like Emily Paris did this more than anyone else, but it was sort of- A normal thing of the Hollywood situation that people do. Normal and blatant, right? Normal and blatant. And yeah. so if this is sort of a, 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 an organization that runs on graft, then of course Michaela Cole's show wasn't going to get a nod because there was no graft involved. Nobody was flying anyone over to her set yeah. to uh, put them up in $1,400 hotel rooms. And, and so suddenly the Golden Globes were revealed to be a bit of a scam, right? A bit of a sham. And you could buy your influence. You could buy your way into an award. Mm. And I think that rubbed everyone the wrong way, uh, including, I guess, I think it's NBC here in America that puts on the Golden Globes. And so NBC said to the Golden Globes, you must make significant changes in this amount of time if we're going to put the, the show on. And I guess after that period of time was up, the Hollywood Foreign Press had not made any significant change. Significant change would have been get some black people on your staff. Well, yeah. Like, how hard is that? Really, like, how hard is that? There are yeah. a lot of black creators. Yeah, like loads, loads bring of Bring them in, bring them in. Have some equity in the way that you're choosing things and who are who are making the choices. You know, the those who make the choices are going to be biased towards their own sensibility. For so sure. please get some, you know, black people in your um in, in your Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And they didn't. And so what happened was NBC canceled the Golden Globes for this year. And like, I, I literally, I walked in when this was happening and my, my partner said, you canceled the Golden Globes. 
And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, you started, he said, this, he goes, you started like, a conversation. This is your, he's like, this is your fault. I was like, what are you talking about? And then there was like a meme that went around. Have you seen that meme where there's a tiny, um, um, what are those things called? Domino, a teeny tiny domino and then a bigger domino and then a bigger yeah, domino and a bigger yeah, domino. Yeah. And so the teeny, teeny, tiny domino was, you know, my op-ed about Emily in Paris. And then it got bigger and bigger to the Hollywood, you know, to the LA Times. And then, you know, the last big domino to fall was the Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it all so, starts, it always does start usually with like one little thing and then someone, it keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Right, and to be fair, I had no idea about any of this. I was just like, I can't believe Michaela Cole didn't get a nod. I am furious. I'm going to express my fury on Twitter. And then, okay, fine. I'll express my fury in The Guardian. And then, oh my God, I did not realize the can of worms that I'd opened up. Yeah, because obviously sometimes there's these hidden things that people don't see, but it's only one person that says something and then ricochets into people. And then everyone else starts pointing fingers going, hey, that's not right. Hey, that's not right. And then suddenly there's a massive conversation. And I think you did the right thing by expressing what you felt and going, this is not right, we need to talk about it. And then obviously everyone else then talks about it and that's what's happened, that's four. So we're pushing things right. forward. Right, and that's the only way that things get pushed forward by just sort of stepping back and saying, hey, this is not right. Yeah. Um, so talk, talking about expressing yourself, I want to talk about your book because that's the most sure. important thing that I want to talk sure. about. Because we could talk about this, this whole thing for, for, for a long time, the whole Hollywood, uh, Hollywood stuff. And, but I want to know, how did Lady Parts come about? And tell us like a brief summary of what it's about. Okay, so Lady Parts came about because, and you know what, <coughs> this is interesting. I have not done any interviews uh, on the book yet. So this is pretty fresh and I'm going to have to sort of do it, my elevator pitch on the fly because I haven't even thought about it yet. I haven't done any sort of media training yet. I mean, I, 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 will, I will also help you because obviously I've read okay. and did a lot of research. So I will help you as well, yes. Okay, let's do this together. So what happened to me from basically 2011 until present day, so a decade is first I got my uterus out, then I got divorced, then I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Then I had to get my cervix out. Then I nearly died from vaginal cephalitis. It was like one body part after the other was either excised or broken. And one day I was staring at my body in the shower in like 2017, 2018. And I saw each of these scars and I thought, this is the outline of a story. Like this is, you know, each of these body parts are not only, you know, represent a period in time, but they're metaphor for that period of time. So for example, when I got my uterus out, first of all, my daughter got her period on the exact same day that I got my uterus out. And my mentor of many years, my maternal mentor of many years died that same day. So there was just this like confluence of three things, you know, the uterus coming out, my daughter getting her period, my maternal, um, my, you know, sort of adoptive mother dying. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was, and my marriage ending, by the way, and then um, the breast, right? So I was diagnosed with breast cancer, stage zero breast cancer, let's be clear. It was like, I didn't have to go through chemotherapy. It was very easy and we caught it early. So things were okay, but still you have to deal with it. You have to go to the doctor, you yeah. have to get MRIs. And in America, there was a moment where I couldn't afford that MRI. But so the breast was a moment where suddenly I was a solo mother. You know, I was like, I was the only one in charge of my child of my three children because my ex moved across the country, and I was sort of the den mother to this raucous group of of misfits in Harlem because I had to take people into my home in Harlem in order to pay the rent. Like suddenly, I was on the hook for the entire rent, whereas my ex and I were paying for it before, you know, together. And so I took in boarders, and we just had this bizarre, wonderful, like crazy family. We're like. You know, it was it was a commune. We called it the commune. <laughs> um, and then like on and on and on. So like my heart went on the fritz right as I was about to start dating again. And I like had to go on on Tinder dates with this like halter monitor attached to me with like little like things all over my chest and a monitor that oh, was wow. in my heart. Okay. So like, you know, I'm 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 swiping and like wearing a heart monitor at the same time, right? <laughs> That's so like profound, it's isn't crazy. it? It's so crazy, right? And then um and then I had to get my cervix out just as I was like having sex again, right? Like and the cervix becomes disease. So the, the cervix should have come out with 
the uterus. But back then I was told, you know, um, back then I was told we sh you should keep your uterus because we think it may be involved in sexual pleasure. And you're like, okay, don't touch that, right? But yeah. that was wrong. It was bad science. It was based on bad science. And so suddenly I had to have another major operation, eight hours under anesthesia to take out an organ that should have been taken out when the uterus was taken out. But women and science and, and women's health are not studied and not looked at in this country, not looked at anywhere, by the way, it's not just this country, mm -hmm. but it should have been very clear that the clitoris is the only part of the of female anatomy that's involved yeah. in, in pleasure. So you, the, the, the cervix has no part in that whatsoever and it should have come out before so it wouldn't get disease. Now what happened was because they had to go in there a second time to take my cervix out, three weeks after that, that's when I nearly died. And I nearly died from something I had never heard before called vaginal cuff dehiscence, which is when the vaginal canal, which they have to sew up because when they remove the cervix, they sew it up, it comes undone and essentially viscera, like everything from inside you starts falling out of your body. It is, no. it is the most horrific thing I, I, I've ever experienced. My daughter found me, can you hear me right now? My left hand just went out, yeah, yes. okay. My daughter found me at 1.30 in the morning wandering around the apartment because so many giant chunks of me were falling onto the floor. I had a Tupperware container. I know this is gross, but we got to talk about this because this is what happens. I have yeah. a Tupperware container. I'm picking up these chunks of myself, putting them what? in the container because I think like maybe they have to put them back inside me. I am losing so much blood at this point that I am not thinking rationally. My daughter's like, okay, we have to go to the hospital. Yes. And I was like, and here's what I said, no, I can't afford the the ambulance. Like I knew that some people sometimes have to spend three thousand, eight thousand dollars on an ambulance. I was like, no. I am not. And I didn't have thousand dollars for an ambulance. Oh yes, after the fact, even when you have health insurance and you and the problem is each ambulance company is its own thing, right? So you don't know Which what you're going to get charged for so the what ambulance. Do you, so what do you pay for for the health insurance then if the if the ambulance doesn't come with it? Who the fuck knows? <laughs> That's so Who crazy. the fuck knows? So I'm saying to my daughter, we're not calling 911. And my daughter, who's now, by the way, going to medical school, probably because of that night. Like, it was so intense. She said to me, okay, then we're going to call an Uber. And I was like, we're not calling an Uber. I just lost my job. I was like, we're calling Uber Pool. I took Uber Pool to the emergency wow. room. That's America for you, okay? Crazy. Uber fucking pool to the emergency after your, room. After you've got, you've got things in- I'm carrying myself in a Tupperware. And, and then Uber drivers looking at you like, what's going on? Oh my God, that Uber driver was so wonderful, by the way. I can so imagine. I mean, I'm sure this, this person didn't think about like someone's coming in with all the parts of them in a, in a Tupperware box. First of all, my daughter was crying. I'm passing out. The Uber driver was like, so, I'm not even so, going to pick up so other all, passengers. So, all, so yeah. all of this experience is basically in the Lady Parts book about womanhood yes. and of America, basically. It's a, what it is, is how America fucks its women over and over and over again. Whether through, I, I talk about sexual harassment also. Like I had an editor that sexually harassed me. And then I was like, I had to not have that job anymore, right? And then that, my harasser was nominated to the Trump White House. And no. so then the FBI, yes, then the FBI comes to pay a visit because they do a background check. And I'd written a story in the Atlantic about being sexually harassed out of this job. And when I say at least 50 people came out of the woodwork and said, here's what this man did to me too, 12 of which were really serious. So I, I gave the FBI all of my notes. Here are 12 other people that this man messed with in certain ways. Mm -hmm. One of which was so criminal that the FBI actually started looking into it. It was, a, it was a case of cyber stalking where like the man showed up at this woman's hospital and he wrote horrible reviews of her as a doctor. And he showed up at her apartment building, like really serious cyber stalking. And he sent this other woman a note saying that like her husband was having an affair, but her husband wasn't having an affair, like real psycho wow. shit, right? So the FBI 
arrest him in October of 2020. And I was like, oh, that, great. Like there's there's the, the, the system working as it should. And guess what happened on the morning of Biden's inauguration? Trump pardons him. Why? Uh, because they're friends, because Trump and this man um, are are very close friends and the and the man's best friend is jared kushner so he was pardoned oh i mean that's not right at all uh, no of course it's not but not all. Um, no it's not right at all um we presidential pardons in this country have never been used in the way that trump used them to really like let criminals go free it's kind of like just setting like a little like voucher out to everyone just go oh, yeah. like, here's my friend here's my friend here's some voucher. Yeah. here's my voucher and that's yeah Oh, damn, I didn't, wow. I'm assuming this is all documented, the news and that sort of thing, I'm, I'm assuming. Oh yeah, I wrote about it in the Atlantic. Yeah, I wrote about it twice in the Atlantic, yeah. So so there's so there's so many themes then within this book of like womanhood, of like childcare, sexual harassment, um, ageism, sexism, every, there's so much, like there's so much in this book. How did you, how did you like start compiling all like all these kind of themes into one book? Cause there's quite a lot of stuff. Right. So that, so when I realized, when I looked down at my body and saw the scars in the shower, which sort of <coughs> was the thing that flipped on the light, that's when I realized I have a, a means with which to tell the story. Like any story that you want to tell needs a conduit, needs a way in which to tell the story. You can't just like bleh, throw it all up on the page, right? You mm -hmm. have to figure out a way that it all fits into one book, first of all, and thematically within two chapters, right? Once I hit on the idea of the body parts and the body parts were sort of a wink, wink, nod, nod to the way that men objectify us. Like, you know, if you look at advertising, the history of advertising, it's like, there's a woman's breast to sell, you know, a ring. There's a woman's thigh to sell, you know, some moisturizer. Like we are broken down into our body parts by the male gaze. But this I was going to flip on its head and be like, I'm going to look at myself. This is the female gaze staring at my own body, self-objectifying, but without the misogyny. So it, it was a way of saying, like, I'm going to look at womanhood through looking at my body. And all of these themes fit into the it fit under the umbrella of how women are screwed in this country, particularly in America. I mean, this is really an American book. Right. This is not a book that I would have written in London. This is not a book I would have written in France or in a socialist country or like Sweden or Norway or any any place that actually has built in infrastructure and safety nets for families when you get sick. Our country have has no safety nets for when you get sick. That was absolutely revealed via COVID. You know, the black light of COVID has like really shown us who we are as a country. Yes, we got the vaccine going fast. So good for us on that front. But under Trump, we were a friggin' disaster, right? Mm. It's just a disaster. And the fact that we have politicized masks in this country, you know, it's all part and parcel of the same thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the body parts allowed me to talk about a plethora of things, a myriad of things, a, a, all the things that make womanhood and particularly older womanhood, anything past reproductive age, difficult in America, mm -hmm. that all fell under these umbrellas of the different body parts. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's, it sounds like this book is like something that like, if you wanna read about womanhood and you love women, then it basically is, is the book for you, basically. It's like, it's all about womanhood and women and everything that you should be, should know. So what was very, edifying for me was, you know, you, as a writer, you have to send out books for to friends and that you know that are writers for blurbs, you know, to say, hey, this book is great. Mm. You know, when Kurt Anderson or Rick Moody or, or AJ Jacobs came back to me or John Schwartz came back to me with like, I had no idea. I had no idea. So when the men came back to me with, wow, this is like the playbook this is the playbook for the other team that we need because essentially I've thrown everything in there. Everything I know about being a woman in America is in this book. And a lot of it's really surprising. For example, and this I learned from one of your authors, a woman named Caroline Criado Perez, who wrote a book called um, about the data gap in women. Um, I think it's called the data gap, but anyway, that Viagra, 
was shown to inhibit period cramps for up to four hours with no adverse side effects. But the NIH, um, the person, the, the scientist who studied this went to the NIH and said, we need to look into um, Viagra as a treatment for period cramps. And the NIH literally said to him, a, a panel of men, dysmenorrhea is not a big problem. Dysmenorrhea being period cramps. Well, that is so wrong. It is so incorrect. Um, so I, 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 I talk about everything I have learned scientifically, emotionally, psychologically that keep women down. Um, with ageism being a real issue for women in my age group. You know, I'm 55 years old and literally no one will hire me. I applied for jobs at the New York Times and at the Washington Post. I have an Emmy to my name. I now have a Golden Globe to my name. I, I, I have written for the Atlantic. I have, you know, I have awards. I have this, I have that. I have best-selling books. I couldn't get an interview at the Washington Post or the New York Times. I could not get one interview, not even like I was interviewed and I didn't get job. <clears throat> Being a 55 year old woman, you are put out to pasture, whether, you know, in, in the job that you're in, or like once you're put out to pasture and trying to get back in, nobody wants you. They want young, they want cheap, and they don't want women of my, of my age and generation in the workplace. And at first I thought it was crazy, like maybe it's just me, but now all of us women are talking to each other on Facebook groups that are for women of my age group. Mm -hmm. And it's happening to all of us. We are being put out to pasture subtly, sadistically, and without um, any notion that like, we still are vital. We still wanna work. We still wanna contribute and God damn it, we need health insurance. Yes, which I find yeah. health insurance so, strange i just i like i it just it just is weird like i don't even know what you pay for like what do you pay for like why you why do you have it why is there not a system like the nhs in america i honestly don't understand i think, I think if there was like a massive emergency where you had to be put in the hospital for like you know you're you're you know you're on a ventilator for many weeks you know and that would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars if not a million dollars at a certain point then yeah then health insurance pays for the majority of that but you're still on the hook for sometimes 20% of that, 10% of that, which can be a significant amount of money. Mm. So it just means that you have to be making way much more money to subsidize your health. It's, pay, it's, pay, it's pay just it. insane. It's just insane. It's insane. And it's like, it's, a, it's, an, it's an invisible tax, right? Mm. We think in America, well, are we only paying 30% tax? No, no, you're not only paying 30% tax, you're paying for your kid's preschool. Like that should be free. You're paying for your healthcare, that should be free. You know, when you actually, you know, break down the numbers, which I haven't done, but I would imagine we're paying close to 80% tax, you know, just because everything is expensive. Childcare. I, I, I broke it down with one of my friends in New York and this is just like basic healthcare insurance, rent, one cinema trip a week or whatever it was. And we worked out the average minimum just to survive in New York is $45,000. That's minimum. Uh, that's just. Oh, that's I would have thought. Survive. I would have thought fifty. I would have thought fifty. Yeah. But yeah. <clears throat> Forty-five thousand. I mean, that's not even the average in the UK. Most people, I think, make is twenty-five thousand pounds. That's the yeah. average. I think that most people kind of make in the UK. That would even like cover anything in the US. I mean, obviously, obviously, you got the the conversion rate of like dollars to pounds and stuff. But the the point of the matter is that. Just to even survive is forty five thousand dollars. Is crazy. But do you mean that that it costs you forty five thousand dollars in income that's then taxed, or do you need forty five thousand so you have we, to we, earn we, eighty? We, we 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 did we did forty five thousand without taxed. So wow. so then you have to earn eighty to get that. Yeah, basically like you have to 70. earn eight. Yeah, roughly about that, just to 70, survive. Whatever. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, I was a single mother of three and, um, you know, paying for college, which was in, you know, in, in the United States college is $60,000, $70,000 per kid per year. Um, and I remember reading, there was an MIT calculator, you know, Massachusetts Institute yeah, of Technology yeah. had a calculator for like what a single mother of three in New York 
needed to survive. It was $112,000, an income of $112,000. How do you make $112,000? Like- I worked three, three jobs. <laughs> at, one point, at one point in 2019, at one point in 2019, I had a full-time job in a tech company called Neurotrack, where I was the head writer. I was working on Emily in Paris full-time. So basically I'd work on Emily in Paris in the morning, and then I would come home and do my Neurotrack work. And I was writing this book and had my column at the Atlantic. So I had four jobs at one particular point. And so what happened was I'd wake up at 4 a.m. I'd write the book until eight. Then I would walk to Emily in Paris. Then I would come back and then I, and I didn't have a car in LA because I I just didn't. And then I I came back from Emily in Paris, would do my neuro track work till around midnight, fall asleep, wake up at four. I mean- That's crazy. When I tell you I haven't had a vacation since 2012, I have not had a vacation since 2012. It It sounds like it, you need one. I can't, I'm, I'm going to France in a week from tomorrow with my daughter before she heads to medical school. And I'm more excited about this week away than I am about, like I have been about anything, anything. And I just hope that there's no like variant issue. Like the Delta doesn't come in and you're not allowed to come in. Like I'm just praying over the next week that we're still allowed to come because I've got my tickets. I've got my Airbnbs. We're going to Saint-Malo. I can't wait. Anyway. Amazing. Well, the thing I want to kind of like leave this kind of episode is when does your book come out? That's what we want to know. So the book comes out on August 3rd. It's available, um, you know, at all the normal places. You can, yeah. you know, try not to buy it on the Evil Empire Amazon. Um, if you could buy it at your local <laughs> indie bookstore, that would be great. But I think if your audience is British, it might they might have to get it on Amazon. We're, I'm not sure there's there's, a- we're from everywhere. Britain, there's France, England, there's Australian, there's New Zealand. They're from everywhere. I think you can get it. I think you can get it at Waterstones. I'm pretty sure it's going to be available at Waterstones starting August 3rd as well. Amazing. I'll be, I'll be getting my copy. I can't wait to read it. Like I've, I've, I, if if you've done, if you've done your research about like what's going on in the world and you do your research about what's the sort of like what's happening in this sort of book and the information about the book, you need to, that I'm, I'm speaking to everyone who's listening. You need to get this book and read it because I am excited. It is going to change. Honestly, it will change your perspective about women. Honestly, or if you, or if you didn't know enough, you will know enough now. Uh, that's what I believe. Well, thank you so much. It's really, I really appreciate <coughs> you being a man talking to me about my lady parts because the more <laughs> men we have talking about women's lady parts, thinking about women's lady parts, thinking about the parts that women have to play. Cause there's a play on the word here, right? It's lady parts, but it's also the parts that ladies have to play. And I kind of continually go back to this, like this text about from 1860 about what a proper lady must do. And a proper lady must not talk about her illnesses because that is excessively ill-bred. And so this book is like a fuck you to that. And, and I am going to talk about illnesses and women and blood, because if we do not normalize discussions of female associated viscera, we are going to die in greater numbers. We are going to be misunderstood. We are not going to get the healthcare we need. And this feels vital to me in a way that none of my other books have felt. Like I want and need to get this information out there. Can't wait to, can't wait to delve into it. Really can't wait. Um, so. As we come to the end of the episode, what I always love to do with my guests is ask them a give back. What would you give back? I mean, we spoke about loads of different things, but what would you give back to an audience that has inspired you recently? It could be part of something part of the book. It could be a mantra. It could be a film. It could be anything. What would you give back to our audience? Uh, I have three things. Um, <laughs> And I've got to have to look up the, the, the name of the first one because I think it's a different name in the United States than it is in Great Britain. So hold on one second. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on. Okay. So there's a British author named Caroline Criado Perez. Mm-hmm. And the name of her book is called Invisible Women. And it is all the ways in which um, the world is not built for women. So everything from crash test dummies to healthcare to uh, kitchen counters. Um, it's also about data gaps. Like we're not studying women. We're, 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 you know, the male is still the, the 
the, the, the person that we study in science. And she's arguing that we need, to, we need to disassociate. We need to study how men's bodies work and how women's bodies work. And she's brilliant at it. And she has a newsletter called, uh, I think it's called Invisible Women as well. Anyway, brilliant. The second book I wanna talk about is um, Ayad Akhtar's Homeland Elegies. It's a novel that came out last year and it was really, it was my favorite book of the year. Um, it's about being Muslim American. And I don't wanna say anything more than that, but it is brilliantly written, brilliantly thought, a, a masterpiece, I think. I hope it wins all the awards. It is, a, it is so good and it's also funny. I love when books can be both intellectually challenging and funny. And he's kind of a master at putting humanity into um, concepts we really need to think about as white people, right? It's, it's funny, it's brilliant, it's, it's a perfect book. And the other thing I wanna mention, which is what got me through COVID, you know, I got COVID in, in March of 2020. So I got COVID March 18th, 2020, I got a pretty serious case. And the piece of music that got me through this that I've actually sort of been listening to on auto repeat ever since is <laughs> the Grateful Dead's Cornell 1977 um, uh, set. So it was like, it, it had, um, uh, do you know the Grateful Dead at all? Or is that just no, an American I, thing? I, don't, I think maybe it might be American thing, it might not be. I, I'm just maybe not uh, equipped. With okay, it. so the Grateful Dead was a show, was a, was a, was a group in the 60s, 70s, 80s in America that, um, you know, it was, it was the group that Hunter S. Thompson talked about. It was the, it was the beginning of psychedelia in the United States. Um, it, had a, it had a huge following. And there is a particular album that you can now get on Spotify. It's called Cornell 5877 Live. And it's the Grateful Dead plays that, you know, at the Cornell University that date. And it's just kind of a perfect set. It's a perfect set of Grateful Dead music. It was very soothing to listen to on auto repeat. Um, it got me through COVID and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to the Grateful Dead. Mm. Mm. And so you can get it on Spotify. You can get it, you can kind of listen yeah. to it on any platform. Yeah, wait here, here, you can see right here. You can see that I, right there. Yes, I see it. I love the art, does the artwork. Oh, it. they're amazing. So now that you've, you're going to be discovering Grateful Dead for the first time, you can call me and we can talk about like, <laughs> yeah. what's the best. It's really, it's like, it's beautiful music. And maybe it's just nostalgia for me. And I'm older than you by a lot of years. And, and these were the shows that I went to. And um, it's beautiful music. Cool. Brilliant. I'll add that to my playlist. Well, I want to say thank you so much for coming on 360 yourself. You have been 360. Love it. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, so everyone listen please please do buy into her book lady parts uh august is coming out august 3rd you said august 3rd yep mm -hmm. august 3rd please do order now pre-order if that's a still a thing i don't know if people pre-order i'm not sure but yes 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 get it um it's going to be absolutely amazing i'm very excited to have it and i want to say thank you again so much for creating 360 yourself thank you so much jamie nice to meet you This is 360 Yourself and I'm Jamie Neal. Thank you very much for taking a moment to listen to our wonderful guests. Please subscribe to our podcast to access all our brilliant guest episodes. They are released every Sunday at 12pm. We are available on all listening platforms, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Google Podcasts and Castro. You can also find us on Instagram at 360 underscore yourself, Twitter at yourself360 and our host at Jamie Neal JN. Thank you for listening.